When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Good Heavens is a podcast that takes a deeper look into the cosmos, revealing God's wondrous power and design. So all we need to do is invent a universe that God does not play a role in, and that would improve your imagination enough so that you could imagine universes where God was not important. I claim that it is not hard to invent universes, possible universes, hypothetical universes, not necessarily our own, but universes that are self-contained, consistent, coherent, and in which God plays no special role, no role at all. So here's the universe. Only... L. Ron Hubbard's words are valid in Scientology, and he's dead. So he can't write any revisions of anything that he did. They're just stuck with that, and they will keep doing exactly that until someone from outside the organization stops them from doing it. So all we need to do is invent a universe that God does not play a role in, and that would improve your imagination enough so that you could imagine universes where God was not important. L. Ron Hubbard um, convinced or convinces Scientologists that he has the answers to all the problems of mankind, he and he alone. I claim that it is not hard to invent universes in which God plays no special role, no role at all. 75 million years ago, uh, an evil galactic ruler named Xenu, he controlled many planets, there were too many people there, he wanted to round up all the bad people, the people that weren't paying taxes, the criminals, he rounded them up, he somehow froze their spiritual beings in glycol, put them in rocket ships that looked like DC-8s, and had them flown to the planet Earth dropped in volcanoes and then blown up with hydrogen bombs. The ultimate statement of this is Hubbard invented all of this, but he bought it too. I claim that it is not hard to invent universes in which God plays no special role, no role at all. The first of the two individuals you just heard is theoretical physicist Dr. Sean Carroll from a 2013 lecture titled, God is Not a Good Theory. In that lecture, Carroll aims to create universes in which he claims God has no important or even functional role. The second individual is former high-ranking Scientologist Mike Rinder, describing his experiences in and his escape from science fiction writer L. Ron Hubbard's cult of Scientology. You can hear the full interview with Mike Rinder talking to Watchman Fellowship President James Walker on our main podcast, Apologetics Profile. We will feature links to those episodes in the notes of this episode. So what do Dr. Carroll's ideas and L. Ron Hubbard's ideas have in common? Both men have attempted to create a universe in which God does not exist. 
or more succinctly, they have made themselves out to be like God, claiming to know how to create universes or solve all the world's problems. Hubbard attempted to intimidate and force people to live in his science fiction world, but in a more subtle sense, Carroll's brilliance, his knowledge of mathematics and physics, his prolific writings and public lectures are not in a few ways, subtly or not so subtly, attractively persuading his audience that God is not necessary in our universe. The implications for taking either man's cosmological ideas seriously will eventually lead to confusion, despair, destruction, and spiritual death. Consider, for example, how Carroll said that there was nothing or no one outside of his universe. But who or what, then, is ultimately responsible for the arrangement of the mathematics of his theoretical worlds? Dr. Carroll himself, of course. But in claiming there is no intelligent agent outside his fictitious constructs, he's negated his own intelligence and existence. In trying to get rid of God, he's rendered himself non-existent. I arranged the math in this universe, but there's no one outside this universe who arranged the math. It's self-defeating and certainly has not shown God to be unnecessary. If Carroll has shown anything in his examples, it is that even the most basic universes require input of an intelligent agent. Carroll has, in his examples, unwittingly demonstrated the necessity of God's existence. In a 2020 book titled Cosmological Fine-Tuning Arguments, What, If Anything, Should We Infer from the Fine-Tuning of Our Universe for Life, published by Routledge, philosopher and author Jason Waller concludes that after having surveyed the many different reasons for why our universe permits life to exist, says, quote, I conclude that some kind of godlike thing probably does exist. But I reserve the right to change my mind in the future should compelling evidence to the contrary be brought to my attention. End quote. This is precisely what Romans 1 tells us, that we know God exists through what he has created, but we suppress that truth in unrighteousness. In academia, Waller's conclusion is quite courageous, as few non-religious philosophers or scientists would be willing to concede anything similar. Cosmologists and physicists and those philosophers who examine the implications of what science has discovered about our universe are often intimidatingly brilliant when it comes to how they can understand and arrange probabilities and numbers when describing our universe or other theoretical universes. Of course, there's no problem per se in studying the universe or making hypotheses about how it all might work and what it all means. But when you attempt to use theoretical models, probabilities, or complicated equations, or in the case of L. Ron Hubbard, a strange combination of science and science fiction, to make yourself out to be like God, or to deny God's existence, the philosopher or scientist has overstepped his finite reasoning abilities. We might think of the mathematics of these theoretical worlds as metaphysical, that is, non-physical, Lego bricks. 
Each scientist uses these metaphysical bricks to put together a theoretical universe or universes of some sort. Like a painter uses paint to create a portrait or a writer uses words to create worlds in his stories. But the paints or the mathematics or the words are not actual worlds in reality, only imaginative reconstructions that borrow from materials and concepts in our world. So if a cosmologist wants to recreate a universe without God, let him first get his own mathematics, his own space, time, matter, and energy. As God asks Job, do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you guide a constellation in its season? In 2019, I wrote an article for Justin Brierley's Unbelievable about the debate he hosted between Nobel laureate cosmologist and physicist Sir Roger Penrose and renowned Christian philosopher William Lane Craig. In the article, I focus on how Penrose seemed to reluctantly concede there might be something to God's existence, but failed to commit to that idea despite the evidence Craig presented regarding the universe's intelligibility and mathematical resonance. Here is a small excerpt from Dr. Penrose from that discussion. Some, some, someone, as, as you know, um, uh, who was it who said that someone's been monkeying with the physics? Um, Hoyle. Uh, Hoyle uh, Fred Hoyle said, it, it looks as though, as, as, as Bill has said, some sort of design is there to, to ensure that we, we got here. Now, yeah. now what, do you, what do you say to that, that idea? Well, I'm, I'm agnostic, I would say, on that one. You see, it's not clear to me I mean, people talk about about um, well, even the mass ratio between the proton and the neutron, and the fact that the neutron is just a little bit more massive than the proton, and it goes that way rather than the other way around, and so on. But but it's it's very difficult to since we only know one kind of life, you see, mm. or one kind of the production of consciousness. It may be very rare. Throughout the universe, we, I mean, the numbers may not all be that all that all that good. You see, you can imagine fiddling with them so that so that there were consciousnesses all over the place. You see, I don't know. You see, we don't know enough about that. And there are some nice examples from science fiction which show different alternatives. I like the one Fred Hoyle's idea of the the black cloud. You see, where this was a completely different way of imagining a conscious being. Okay which was this huge cosmic cloud which uh, communicated I guess by electromagnetic signals and things like that. The other story which I like to r- refer to is, is one um, by Robert Forward which was a uh, uh, Dragon's Egg I think was the name of the story where there was a neutron star which came close to the sun and uh, the people on the earth went to explore it and it turned out that there were living beings on this neutron star which instead of using chemistry they use nu- nuclear processes mm. and this means that their lives and evolution took place millions of times faster than us mm. and how you can make a story with this complete imbalance <laughs> was an amazing achievement I yes. thought but, but, but they even had a religion which took place in, in the Chilas which were the inhabitants of this neutron star and when the earth was 
nothing came close to them. They built their complete religion on, mm. on the star, which appeared, you see, in, in the So do, do you think it's, it's – I mean, these are obviously stories, but do you think yes. it's possible in a sense that some sort of conscious reality could exist uh, even in the absence of the physical – sort of n- n- well, carbon-based life that we, we obviously need. For it could have been done very differently in a different, totally different. You see, there are many different parts of the, of the universe where the physics is very different from what it is on the Earth. And maybe a different kind of life could have evolved there. And uh, I have no idea. I just that we don't know. Consider what he suggests in his book, Fashion, Faith, and Fantasy in the New Physics of the Universe. Penrose notes, quote, There are some key aspects to the nature of our actual universe that are so exceptionally odd, though not always fully recognized as such, that if we do not indulge in what may appear to be outrageous flights of fantasy, we shall have no chance at all of coming to terms with what may well be an extraordinary, fantastical-seeming underlying truth, end quote. Many cosmological models appear to do precisely what Penrose did in that discussion with Craig. They take for granted but fail to explain the mathematical aspects of our universe. If God does not exist, from where does the math come? Rather than follow the evidence where it seems to lead, in this case to a mind beyond the universe, many like Penrose simply fall back to some sort of hard atheism or agnosticism. Some cosmological models are rather fancy and somewhat far-fetched, with some models, like a many-worlds model, suggesting that there are an infinite multitude of our doppelgangers out there in quantum universes somewhere. In trying to do away with one supreme being, ironically, they've created an endless multitude of others. Other models try to do away with the beginning of our universe, only to end up inextricably bound to explaining their unique structures in the common vernacular of sequential time with a beginning. The late Dr. Stephen Hawking went so far as to include imaginary time in his theories to try and circumvent a universe with an absolute beginning. But we should not be intimidated by the way these brilliant minds wield their knowledge of mathematics and physics. For one reason, all they end up really proving is that there is intelligence behind every theoretical universe ever postulated. It follows, then, that if it takes intelligence to create a theoretical universe on paper, how much more so would it require intelligence to create a real universe? And if one insists that there is no intelligence required for our universe then that really is a blow against any human intelligence involved in creating theoretical universes. In trying to construct universes without God, the cosmologist has negated his own intelligence. But creating universes on paper is one of the facets of our humanity being made in the image of God. We too create and enjoy creating because our God himself is the creator. So no matter how complicated or intricate or multifaceted a theoretical universe might be, it's still theoretical. So if someone ever attempts to tell you that Dr. So-and-so has come up with a universe in which God is unnecessary, you can calmly and politely respond by asking them, from where does Dr. So-and-so get his math, or how does he know what God is like, or has he ever actually succeeded in making his theoretical universe into an actual universe? 
But another aspect to modern cosmology is our place as human beings within the cosmos. We are repeatedly told by science popularizers, and sometimes scientists themselves, that we are insignificant in the cosmos simply because we are not at the center and because we are relatively small in relation to the vastness of the universe. But who are scientists, however, to pronounce that humanity is cosmically insignificant? This is yet another example of attempting to be like God. These assumptions about our insignificance beg questions. What cosmologist has seen the universe in its entirety in order to pronounce that we are not at the center or that there is no center? And how big do you have to be in the cosmos in order to be significant? Our relative size in relation to the rest of the universe has nothing whatever to do with our significance as human beings. Viruses are small, and there are a number of microscopic organisms that are fatal to human beings. No one treats these malignant contagions as insignificant based on their small size. And most of us certainly don't live our lives as though we are insignificant. Ironically, if science ever discovered something even like bacterial life on another planet, they would treat that life as rather significant. But us? No. We are told we are nothing special. Wayne and I, however, think all these issues can be properly answered by Scripture. On this episode of Good Heavens, Wayne and I discuss this aspect of making up universes and this baleful notion of cosmic insignificance. We offer what we think is a thoughtful biblical response. Wayne and I hope this episode will give you wisdom and encouragement to engage the ideological opposition to the universe and human beings within it as special creations of the Trinitarian Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, good heavens, Wayne. It's another good heavens. Here we are again. Here we are again, and we're uh, we're going to kind of zip through a lot of things about the universe here today. That's right. Uh, a lot of, uh, as you know, uh, I do read some uh, popular cosmology books. That's my, it's uh, kind of my habit. It's what we do with Good Heavens. We read the books so you don't have to. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. well, we encourage you to, but uh, we give you uh, food for thought if you're going to read uh, books written for lay people on the cosmos. Um, but Wayne, I, as, as, as you know through our emails, one thing that keeps popping up, and I just read this in a new book that just came out um, by a gentleman I, I found on Twitter. His name's Will Kinney, a, and it seems like a nice guy. I don't mean to pick on him or anything. But he's a cosmologist, and uh, he wrote a book, and uh, I have it here somewhere. Oh, An Infinity. Yes, here it is. Uh, an Infinity of Worlds, uh, Cosmic Inflation in the Beginning of the Universe. Now, Dr. Kinney, um, I'm just using this book as an example. It just came out in uh, this year. And he says something that I've seen and you've seen and you've probably we've probably all heard or seen at some point in our uh, engagement with uh, the secular sciences and astronomy and cosmology that, uh, Wayne, we have no special place in the universe uh, there is no special vantage point in the universe. Everything is the same all over the universe. Uh, we are insignificant, that sort of thing. 
And uh, so I thought we'd address that today because um, one thing that hit me, and I, I'm not just picking on Dr. Kinney, he just represents a large body of thought that I've seen. It, go, it goes all the way back to Carl Sagan and even before Carl Sagan, this modern idea that yeah. because uh, of our smallness in the cosmos, Wayne, um, that uh, we are insignificant and that we don't hold a privileged position in the universe and uh, we are nothing. The universe doesn't care about us, that kind of thing. And so we're going to briefly address that. So I thought, Wayne, before we get into the gobbledygook of uh, insignificance, that uh, <laughs> uh, we, we begin with some encouraging words. And I thought what would be fun, I, I know most of our listeners have probably already heard or at least known about the fact that I interviewed an Apollo astronaut this summer. And uh, I'm going to play a clip from that interview uh, from uh, Charlie. Uh, Charlie and I had a wonderful moment during our interview where, where we were reading scripture together. We were reading from the Psalms. We read from Psalm 8, Psalm 19, and uh, he read from Psalm 147. And um, it's, it's pretty amazing. It was pretty amazing for me to sit there and listen to Charlie <laughs> reading from Psalm 147 because Charlie Duke was the voice of Houston for Apollo 11. Not only did he walk on the moon, mm-hmm. he, was, he was the first to talk to Neil and Buzz when they landed on the moon. So he, a very historic man in terms of our human exploration of the cosmos. It was fabulous to talk to Charlie. Yeah. But he read, he read from Psalm 147. So listeners, if you have your Bibles handy... Turn to Psalm 147, and uh, Wayne and I are going to have you listen to Charlie Duke read to you Psalm 147, verses 1 through 4. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant that and fitting to praise him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble, but casts the wicked to the ground. That's fantastic. It's uh, an amazing statement that yeah. he numbers the stars and he calls them each by name. So, Wayne, wasn't that cool? I know you heard that when, when it came out. Uh, Charlie Duke reading from Psalm 147. Yeah, I enjoyed him reading from uh, Scripture. It was really cool, really fantastic. And, of course, if you're a Good Heavens listener, those podcasts are available. We'll link them in the notes uh, for this show. But uh, I want to emphasize for our show today, I want to emphasize verses 3 and 4 that Charlie read. Um, it says that God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And then the next verse is, he counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Wayne, you, you and I have been out at some dark sky spots, uh, my favorite little dark sky spot out in Benjamin. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> we would be there all night counting stars, wouldn't we? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we would get very sleepy by the time we got right. a little of it. And then never mind that if I decided to bring the telescope into it, we would start counting stars that we would never leave. Uh, The sun would come up before we get to to, uh, a few hundred, I guess, imagining trying to count all the stars. But that just is a description, an anthropological description of how vast and infinite God's understanding is that he has the capacity to count, number, 
name all the stars. But I like how the verse in Psalm is compared to the, the number of the stars. If God cares, if he numbers the stars and he counts all the stars and he gives them names, um, you know, the verse right before that is he heals the brokenhearted, he binds up their wounds. And so this is a, a striking contrast to the modern perception that the universe is impersonal, doesn't care about us. It's a vast, open, dark, dangerous, horrible, empty place where if we, we leave the Earth's atmosphere 60 miles above us, we're all going to die. Uh, that kind of monstrous death space that we hear from astronomers. We're going to uh, talk about that and, and give you, our listeners, some practical advice about how to think about this. Because really, Wayne, right off the bat, the statement that we are not special and we're not we have no special place in the universe is not a scientific statement, is it? No, it's not. It's uh, making a very large assumption about things. And uh, it's not science that really tells us that. It's not um, something that any logic demands that you conclude that. It's, it's a choice people make. Right. The universe, if we're going to be strictly scientists about this, the universe doesn't tell you what kind of philosophy to have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Human beings create philosophy. Human beings make philosophy. Uh, but the universe, there's no star in the sky. There's no planet in the solar system. There's no galaxy in the cosmos that tells you what you ought to think about it. Right. And it seems it seems like there's a deliberate voice, if you will, that's trying to counter the silent voice of the heavens because what does Psalm 19 says? And Charlie Duke, we, we read Psalm 19 together as well. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And the firmament or the skies or the expanse declares his handiwork. Day unto day pours forth speech, night unto night reveals knowledge. So it seems like everybody hears this voice. I mean, that's what the psalm says. But people are interpreting it in a way that tries to denigrate or do away with God's existence, right? Yes. Um, Dan, there's a, a few verses from Isaiah I'd like to read. Absolutely. And this is Isaiah 45 and 18, verse 18 and following. So this kind of brings, think, you start by thinking about this vast universe. This brings it down to earth, and, and literally. <laughs> so <laughs> verse 18, Isaiah 45, for this is yeah. what the Lord says, he who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I am the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. That's good. I really That's like good. that. And Yeah, yeah. So there's... There's purpose in the way things are made, and Absolutely. it shows us uh, God's nature and his character. So I'm reading this book by Dr. Kinney uh, a couple of days ago, and I'm on page six, chapter one. Now, I will say, I, I like the, the, the people that write these books that I read. They're good writers. I don't know if they have a writer with them or not, but these are these are enjoyable books. This is what makes this a difficult thing because, you know, I'm not picking on the individuals. 
But their writing style is very compelling, and this is how you get people interested in the sciences. But the message in in these books is just perpetuating something. I mean, you know, it makes makes me think of what Ephesians says that we're not wrestling with flesh and blood, but uh, principalities and powers that exist in heavenly places. And so I'm not saying that Dr. Kenny came up with this. This is a long-standing idea that has been around for quite a while, especially in our modern age, the last 100 and 150 years. Now, here's what Dr. Kenny says in Chapter 1, uh, talking about the Copernican principle, which we've mentioned in previous episodes. This idea that, uh, that uh, Nicholas Copernicus had postulated the Earth is not the center of the universe, but rather the sun goes around the Earth, or the uh, the uh, earth is, is not at the center, but uh, the, the sun is. And this sort of dethroned us from this idea of specialness. Well, first of all, that myth is a myth because if you go back to the medieval idea of an earth-centered universe, it wasn't this glorious idea of a throne or a wonderful place. It was the sump of the universe. Stuff from the heavens fell to this place. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they had the concept that it was the heavens that were perfect. It was that's Earth right. that, that was the dump. Yeah, we, we got a dump, and, and you know, medieval theologians would say, well, we, we ruined it with sin, of course, our, our, our Earth. But uh, this was not, the heavens were perfect. And of course, Tycho, in, in, in your chapter in our book, Story Cosmos, you, you talk about how uh, Tycho and, uh, and uh, um, Kepler's observations of the heavens had changed our perspective about the heavens themselves being changeable uh, because people believed that the heavens didn't change. That's They were immutable and perfect above the moon, but below the moon, oh, watch out, you know. But anyway, Dr. Kinney's picking up on this, and he says on the bottom of page six, he says, the earth, talking about the Copernican principle in a sentence, he, he encapsulates, encapsulates it this way. He says, quote, the earth has no special position in the universe. That's the simple Copernican principle he summarizes. And then he goes on to quote an extension of the Copernican principle where he says this, Wayne, this is really interesting. No observer has a special position in the universe. It's kind of summating Einstein's theory of general relativity, that uh, no observer anywhere in the cosmos, whether they be aliens or bacteria on a comet or, uh, you know, aliens from Mars or whatever the case may be. No, no observer has a special position in the universe. But I paused and I wrote some notes in there, Wayne. What's the, the problem with this is that Dr. Kenny goes on to describe what he thinks the universe is like on a large scale. And I said, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. How can you say no observer has a special position in the universe and then tell me what the universe is like? Yeah, Dan, this makes me think of the whole uh, the whole uh, issue about research on extrasolar planets. You know, we've talked about that. Mm-hmm. And um, so before extrasolar planets were discovered, scientists had a tendency to assume that the way our solar system is, uh, is the the way other solar systems would the be. Standard. Yeah, yeah, the standard. Yeah, we're the standard. treated yeah. our system as, as like the common average solar system. But right. It, but it's right. really not. It's really kind of different than other solar systems. Most of it, it's different than most of them. There are there are a few that are not too different, perhaps, but uh, it's not that our solar system is the run of the mill, really. It's actually the uh, stuff that didn't. It's it's quite not the run of the mill. It's a yeah. It's so a, uh, 
We it, interrupt this program to bring you a special solar system from out. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird. It's a, it's a weird solar system, right? If I'm now now correct me if I'm wrong, Wayne. Is it not that we've discovered basically? I think in in a nutshell that 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 our planets, the way we are arranged in our solar system, it's inverted. In other words, what we've discovered, it seems, is that there are the hot, big, gaseous giants that are closest to their star, and then the rocky core, rocky metallic planets are out further where our gas giants would be. So our solar system is kind of an inversion of what we're finding out there, right? Is that uh, kind of the- That's true, but our solar system has a, a good variety of planets. We have some rocky planets and gaseous planets. It's, it's not uh, that's not actually the case in many solar systems and extra mm. solar extra solar solar systems often they only have the gaseous ones or they may have a few rocky ones and that's it okay okay or they may only have one and well Wayne I, I want to quiz you I have a quiz for you this morning um, and and you can give me the answer and I'll, I'll tell you how you do on your quiz after what do you say it's like 10 questions <laughs> okay <laughs> and uh, to give you, I'll give you a little hint because you weren't prepared for this. I wasn't going to tell you I was going to do this. Uh, you and I have uh, interacted with and talked with uh, and uh, have had Guillermo Gonzalez in our book. And uh, so this this quiz comes out of uh, his book and his observation uh, about the privileged planet. So, Wayne, I'm a series of questions, and you just give me an answer. What do you think? Here we go. From where did Newton discover gravity? Where, what, what place in the solar system? Uh, on planet Earth. Okay, good. One out of one. Where did William Herschel and his sister Caroline first discover binary stars? From Earth. Mm, two out of two, Wayne. You're pretty good. <laughs> Where did Galileo discover Jupiter's moons? Uh, from uh, using a telescope on Earth. Wayne, you're, you're doing fantastic here. Three out of three. <laughs> Where did the Apollo astronauts first launch to the moon? From Earth. This is this is pretty. Uh, it's getting easy. Uh, from where did Einstein calculate relativity? <laughs> from Earth. <laughs> and, and while he was a uh, working in a patent shop. That's right. Uh, from where did uh, Edwin Hubble uh, discover Andromeda to be a galaxy like our own Milky Way? Uh, Earth <laughs> telescope. That's right. Mount Wilson on California, just to be exact. Um, and from where did astrophysics take the astrophysicists take the first picture of a black hole in 2019? From Earth. Wayne. Now you got a ten out of ten. I think those are ten questions, maybe seven questions. I don't know. I wasn't counting. But anyway, Wayne, tell me, do we have or do we not have a privileged position in the universe to be able to find out all this stuff about the universe? Well, from a secular mindset, you might. You'd have to say we're very extremely fortunate or lucky, but I don't, lucky. I don't look at it that way. Right, that's, luck that's not, is luck. That's not the way to look at it. Right. Well, luck is basically what uh, what uh, everyone is saying here. I have an Ohio State cosmologist. Uh, he's he again. I like these books. They're good writers and they're they're fun to read. But I don't. The message is just it's it's. It's all wrong. And this guy, Paul M. Sutter, he's a, he's a cosmologist at Ohio State. And he says this in his book, Your Place in the Universe. Paul says, quote, from the perspective of physical cosmology, there was no plan, no grand design. The heavens did not single this planet out among, among all the others. 
The stars did not whisper to themselves over the eons to conspire and arrange this lucky chance. By all accounts, we're just here. And the universe better get used to it, whether it cares about us or not. End quote. And that's from his book, Your Place in the Universe. But luck. Luck, Wayne. There's no plan. You know know what, Dan? The, The nature of the universe does not depend on the opinion of the scientists. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, it, it reminded me of this. Uh, Wayne, you know the, the, the movie Up, right? And uh, you remember that? I uh, uh, don't remember that. Okay. Well, in the movie, there's this dog, uh, and they, he's wearing what they call the cone of shame, you know, the dog cones. Okay. <laughs> and this reminded me of something in, uh, in Genesis where uh, after Adam and Eve had sinned, Adam says to God, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Now, it's kind of silly because can a man hide himself from God? Can you really hide from God, Wayne? No, you can't. No. Why did Adam hide? Why did he hide? He said, I heard the sound of you. I heard the sound. Now, when we, when, it, when we talk about the heavens, what do they declare? The glory of God, right? But what does Romans 3.23 say? All have sinned and what? Fall short. Fall short of the glory of God. So when we contemplate the universe, Wayne, we are, we are listening to the silent speech declaring day unto day, night unto night, the glory of God. At the same time, we're being reminded of falling short. When the glory is declared, Wayne, we, we look up and we, we, we intimately know that there's something wrong with us, right? Uh, this is what David says. Well, who is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? When we co- contemplate God's glory, the, the one thing that's going to come out of this is that we are going to try to hide a little bit, not just secular people, but but as, as human beings, we try to hide ourselves when we hear God's voice, it's it's hard. It's very difficult. But anyway, I was thinking of the secular cosmologists and the way they describe beginnings of the universe without any reference to God. It's kind of like, and you've seen these pictures from NASA, this cone, right? The cone of like just light at the beginning, some quantum fluctuation, and then this cone broadens out. It looks like a cornucopia of galaxies. Oh, yeah, it's trying to explain the Big Bang. Right, and I thought about the astronomer kind of sticking his head into this cone and declaring there is no God. <laughs> it's, you know, kind of like wearing the dog cone in some sense, that I've, I've got my head at the beginning of the universe, and I can see the whole universe uh, with my head inside this cone, but it's that it's what Kinney says and what other cosmologists have says. Even even the cone itself, Wayne, there's no satellite or technology that can give us that picture of the universe. Where is that coming from? Well, the the, the cone it's the the end the outer end of the or the right end of that cone that we see. The rest of it is um just a, a story that has been made up. A model, a, a right. Scenario. It's a model that's been created. Uh, from scientists, and some of it is comes from mathematical things, but um, it's inferring a history that may or may not be true. Correct. And what's what's fascinating, and maybe most of our listeners would probably know this, but it's worth saying, we have currently no pictures, no actual images of our own galaxy. We have no actual images of Earth going around the sun. We have no actual images of our solar system 
moving. We could take a picture of a distant black hole, but we don't even have full-blown images of our solar system in action, if you will, time-lapsed. We don't have pictures of our galaxy. Yeah, we can. We could kind of uh, infer it from pictures on the inside. We're, we're inside right, the galaxy, right? right? We can't. Right. We can't get outside the galaxy. But we can infer certain things from being inside. That's right. I'm not. We're not dogging the idea that dogging the idea. Pardon the pun. We are not uh, dogging the idea of 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 trying to reconstruct what we think the universe might look like. There's there's nothing wrong with that. But but when it gets to the point where the cosmologists and astronomers and the science popularizers are telling us we're not special, and even going so far as to say we can create universes without referencing god then that's when i think christians should step in and say no no, wait a minute i may not know what what you know in terms of the mathematics of the cosmos but don't tell me the math that you're doing about saturn and galaxies and light is actually evidence that god doesn't exist or proof that you know that the universe began without a beginner without a creator that's where it oversteps science i think and uh, an important thing that we should keep in mind as Christians is we believe God has spoken into the universe and given us his written revelation. We would be left with no concept of our own self-worth and our own value in the scheme of things if it weren't for what God has revealed to us right. in Scripture. Right. It's Scripture that gives us a way out of our own limitations mm-hmm. and and our own um, uh, kind of spiritual blindness. It, it helps us to see beyond our own limits because God, because God revealed it. It didn't come from us. It's kind of like a, a, a lens, Wayne. It's kind of like a telescope. It's actually the best kind of telescope because it enables us to see the universe as it really is, though we don't get all of the details that, that science gives us, obviously. We're not saying the Bible talks about galaxies that, or anything like that to, to, the, to the extent that we see in modern cosmology. But the declaration that, that God isn't necessary. So I have, I'm going to play a couple of clips here for our listeners and I'll, I'll preface them here. Um, from a, a very smart and wonderful, congenial man, he's not a, he's not a Christian or a, a believer, he he can at least understand to, to him. He, he's understanding like the, the fine tuning of the universe is a very powerful argument for God's existence. He's he's conceded this. He's not persuaded by it. But uh, his name is Dr. Sean Carroll, and in 2013 he gave this lecture called "God is Not a Good Theory." Now I would actually agree with that title because God is is not a theory. God is the the creator of the cosmos, but he's saying essentially that that God is not necessary to explain universes or our universe. And he goes on, it's an hour lecture, and uh, I want to play a couple of clips here. And what I want you to notice and listen to when you're when you're doing this is how dismissive. And he's he's respectful when I say he's dismissive. He's not being condescending or quirky or sarcastic. He's he's he literally is trying to approach this from an even level headed, thoughtful scientist. But I want you to notice how he's dismissive of the idea of God. In other words, he's saying, I can come up with some universes where God is not necessary. Okay. And uh, just, just have a listen to this. So all we need to do is invent a universe that God does not play a role in, and that would improve your imagination enough so that you could imagine universes where God was not important. I claim that it is not hard 
to invent universes, possible universes, hypothetical universes, not necessarily our own, but universes that are self-contained, consistent, coherent, and in which God plays no special role, no role at all. So here's the universe. For, uh, apologies for the math. This universe is three-dimensional space uh, evolving in time, and in that space there is one particle. That is the whole universe. This particle moves according to Newton's laws of motion in the, under the influence of some potential energy. So here's space, there's time, there's our particle moving. It has an equation of motion. And this goes on forever into the infinite far past or the infinite far future. I claim this is a logically conceivable universe, that you can't stop me from imagining that this is the universe. It's clearly not our universe. I'm not trying to claim that there is some complicated transformation that makes our real world look like this. But this could be a universe, and there is no God in this universe. There's just a particle moving. If you want a slightly more realistic example, uh, here is a, a universe that I think might actually be right. Uh, I replace, instead of three-dimensional space, I have a space of states, which is some Hilbert space, that is to say, some quantum mechanical space of possible states, a space of wave functions, if you like. Uh, there's also time evolution, so the state is an element of that Hilbert space, and it evolves with time. If you want to know how it evolves, well, it solves this equation, Schrodinger's equation, where this capital H is an operator called the Hamiltonian, which basically tells you how the state evolves with time. So this universe is one that is mathematically isomorphic to a, a uh, trajectory in a Hilbert space according to this Schrodinger's equation. It goes forever from the infinite far past to the infinite far future. It is self-contained. There's no something outside this universe that is holding it up, sustaining it, keeping it going, causing it to exist, or uh, allowing it to persist. It is simply that mathematical structure, full stop. So there he is, Wayne, and a brilliant cosmologist. He's, he's published many books. He's, he's a popular speaker. Um, and he came up with these two, we just gave a couple examples there, two mathematical possible universes where he says God doesn't exist. But it's interesting because he says there's no, nobody outside these universes. I'm like, well, well Sean, you, you, you're outside the universe that you just made. You, <laughs> you just kind of negated your, your own existence by saying... There's no one that created these universes. Well, well, you did, but but really they're not universes at all. They're just possible theoretical states of matter, space, time, and energy. What do you think? What do you think of what he said there? Yeah, yeah, he's. It's like he's saying if you can't uh, model it mathematically and observe it materially, then it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't work because, first of all, he's he's imposing this order on his concept. He's He's trying to model this universe, so he's part of this. He envisioned this model of what he presented. He tries to uh, boil it down to a, a simple equation and so on, so a real simple case of a particle moving through space. Mm. And then, well, he's assuming certain mathematical things, right? Yes. So, where does the mathematical order come from? Exactly. Where does the, where does the <laughs> mathematics, for him to be able to write the equation, come exactly. from? Exactly. Exactly. He can't. He can't escape the fact, Dan, that he has to presume something is there that has that's really information. There's information and structure built into the universe that had to come from something. Exactly. Exactly. 
And so it's it's the joke, and I can't remember the joke completely, but it's one of the jokes where a scientist says, "Well, you know, I'm gonna, I bet I, I'm gonna create life from a handful of inorganic materials." And uh, God steps in and says, "No, wait a minute, get your own dirt." You know, uh, so Sean is yeah. <laughs> Sean is get your own get your, get own, your math. own mathematics. Yeah, get your own That's mathematics. Right. Just because Sean says let there be empty space with a single particle in it does not bring empty space with a single particle into existence any more than describing a meatloaf recipe makes a meatloaf. Right? I can I can read to you my mother's meatloaf recipe, Wayne, but that's not going to make a meatloaf for you and I to satisfy our hunger. We actually need to do right. the thinking. So what Carol's basically done, he's saying, look, I can make a recipe, I can describe a recipe where there's no meatloaf maker. Therefore, it's mathematically possible that meatloafs can come into existence without cooks. That's what he's saying. And yeah. and, and people are odd. I mean, now, Sean is a genius when it comes to the mathematics and the physics and the quantum mechanics, things that... Uh, but I think in some degree, Wayne, that that special language, I'm not denigrating math. I don't want to say that math is bad, of course, because that is the language of the universe. And he's really adroit at uh, describing the, the mathematics of, of the cosmos. But uh, I think in a lot of ways, uh, this language can be used to intimidate people that know nothing about the universe, right? So the mathematics is so complicated. Well, Dr. Carroll must be right because he's so smart with math. But as you say, he's borrowing the math. He's borrowing time, space, matter, and energy. He's presuming these things to exist and, and creating a world where he says, look, God doesn't exist. Well, it's like me reading my mom's meatloaf recipe and going, look, my mom doesn't exist. <laughs> it doesn't work that yeah. way. Um, I have a quote from uh, a theologian. Uh, John M. Frame, who wrote a very accessible, it's a, it's kind of big, but it's very accessible. It's called A History of Western Philosophy and Theology. It, it sounds like a dense book, and it's a big book, but, but John writes in a way that anybody can understand it. And uh, John says this, talking about naturalism, uh, from the Greeks to the present-day secularists, uh, this idea, Wayne, naturalism being the idea that nature is all that exists. So if you go back all the way to Democrates, who says, uh, you know, all is just atoms in the void, um, uh, to the present day, Carl Sagan, where he said, uh, you know, the, the cosmos is all that is, ever was, is, or will be. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then Carol saying, you know, I can create a universe without God. Uh, Dr. Frame says this. He says this, uh, this idea that nature is all that exists goes far beyond any possible observation. It is the language of a man sitting in an armchair, dogmatically asserting what the whole universe must be like. The all statements of these thinkers represents human reason as vastly exceeding its limits. This is rationalism and awe over the power of reason that turns it, reason, into a god. I, that's exactly what's happening. We are overawed by the, the, the mathematics and the science and the, the credentials of these brilliant minds who are telling us that there is no God at the beginning of the universe and that we are not special. And uh, that is extraordinarily contrary to what the Bible says. And uh, I want to uh, uh, just uh, have Charlie Duke read to us Psalm 8. Uh, he, this is Charlie Duke reading us to, uh, Psalm 8 and David contemplating the universe and God's care for him. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. Because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger, 
When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. So, uh, Wayne, how about that, that when David looks at the universe, he doesn't think that he is not special. He recognizes in humility who he is before God and marvels that God cares for him. Yes, so uh, uh, we should we should emphasize, I think, Dan, that uh, from a biblical point of view, we don't get our value from the universe. We, how, where do we get our value and worth from? It's from God and how he values us. And he values all human life the same, equally, really. But As you said from Isaiah. Not everyone responds to God the same. Uh, so, um, God has created the earth. That re- that's right. We need that relationship with him to um, discover the what we're really made for. <laughs> right. Uh, God has created the earth to be inhabited, as you read in uh, Isaiah. And then he didn't just leave us alone. This isn't a sort of uh, machine that God created and then left it alone. If God didn't superintend the creation, there would be no sun, moon, or stars. His uh, his guiding hand, and I don't claim to know exactly how it all works, but his guiding hand is upholding everything constantly and continually. His voice, his uh, I think uh, Hebrews, Hebrews 1 says that he upholds the universe, all things, by the word of his power, uh, that, that God's constantly interacting with his creation uh, and then entered into it in the person of his son Jesus, uh, to be with us. So he has provided a wonderful place, a wonderful stage, if you will, to come and uh, dwell with us, as the Gospel of John says. We have beheld him. Uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And uh, there's a wonderful passage, and I have this theologian by the name of Herman, Herman Bavink. He's a Dutch theologian, and he's uh, wrote uh, a book called Dogmatics. It's three volumes, but you can get it in one volume. And he's talking about creation, and I think this is fascinating. He gives, uh, and this is not an exhaustive list, but you know, Wayne, how um, naturalism and naturalists will say that uh, everything in nature uh, reminds people or is evidence of evolution. But uh, uh, Bavink goes on to say that uh, it's remarkable how many things in nature, in our everyday world, that God uses in language and scripture to compare himself to. So Romans 1, you know, where it says that we can clearly see God's invisible attributes and what he has made. Well, here's, here's what this means, really. God compares himself to a lion in Isaiah 31.4, an eagle in Deuteronomy 32.11, a lamb in Isaiah 53.7, a hen of all things in Matthew 23.37, the sun in Psalm 84.11, our God is a sun and shield, a morning star, the morning star, Revelation twenty two sixteen. Light in general, Psalm twenty seven one. A fire, Hebrews twelve twenty nine. A spring or a fountain in Psalm thirty six and in Jeremiah two. And then in the Gospels, and not just in the Gospels, uh, but in Isaiah and John, uh, God is compared to Jesus: food, bread, drink, and water. In Isaiah fifty five and John four and John six. And then a rock 
Deuteronomy 32.4, a refuge, a tower, a stronghold, a shadow, a shield, a road, and a temple. God is comparing himself in his nature. He's given us a multitude of examples of what God is like. And so the, the multitude of creation gives us things that we can understand in our own human, limited human frame about what God is like. One of the things that you see this perfect example in secular astronomy where people will will complain, if well, if God has uh, made the universe for life, um, why is it so empty? Uh, why is the universe so big? What a waste of time, space, materials or whatever. If the universe was supposed to be habitable for life, how come we're the only life, apparently the only life in it? Well, I think, if you look at Colossians 1, um, that we are, the universe declares God's glory. So the universe wasn't created primarily for us, right? Like a hotel, right. like a hotel, like a, a, a famous hotel or something, wasn't primarily created for you and me. It was created for the, the, the Palmer House in, in Chicago. Palmer uh, was a business magnate. He created it. He built it for his wife. And it, it, it was for guests, obviously. But the, the primary glory of that was Palmer and his wealth, right? I'm going to display my wealth and my love to my wife. And that was the primary purpose for why that hotel was built, the secondary purpose of which was habitability. But the universe, the secondary, I would say secondary or tertiary, whatever, the primary cause, the primary reason the universe exists is for God's glory, not for our comfort, if you will. Yeah, it's more to show what God is like. That's right. Not uh, not for human life. So it's not a it's not a subway system in New York City where every planet has life on it and we got subways going between planets. That's not what it's about. And I think a lot of times the argument is straw man in the sense that uh, Christians say that the universe was made specifically uh, uh, or primarily for us. And that's not what Christians or the Bible argues. It was primarily made for the glory of God. Yes, yeah, so it's not a waste when it shows us God's uh, how God is all powerful and right. all, uh, a present everywhere. It's not a waste if it's a waste only if you're on a budget. I don't think God was on a budget. That's right. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah, if I only have a hundred dollars for groceries and I spend it all on candy, that's a waste. <laughs> that's right. God did not have an energy budget when He made the universe. <laughs> he is. Uh, he is. Yes, He's infinite in terms of what He can supply. So He was not on a. <laughs> he, he didn't have a million dollar budget. He He was unlimited in His budget, and so the the heavens declare that uh, the the riches and the magnet the magnanimity magnanimity. I forget that word. Magnanimity. Magnanimity. Thank you, Wayne. Uh, that's like habitable and <laughs> habitable for me. Magnanimity of God's uh, God's character and his nature. And, um, of course, uh, it also, you know, and I would credit to the astronomers who point out that the universe is deadly. Well, of course it is. Uh, you can't go outside of 60 miles of our atmosphere without uh, your proper attire. So I like to think of the, quote, deadliness of the universe as a kind of holiness of God, you know, that we can't encounter the universe. You can't go on the moon and experience the lunar beauty without your proper clothing on, because if you do try to walk on the moon without your gear, you're going to die. So you, you need to have the proper clothing, if you will, to explore the cosmos outside of the, uh, the stage of Earth that we have here. And uh, so I think that part of the universe points to God's holiness. It's beautiful, it's vast, it's powerful, it's light, right? There's no astronomy without light. 
and God is light. John, I think First John 1, uh, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So uh, that, that aspect of the universe is uh, also um, something that is remarkably God-like in, in, in nature. Light, you know, the universe, we don't have astronomy or cosmology without, uh, without light. Right, so we we depend on we depend on light, and we depend on what we see and what we're able to measure about the universe. But we still have our own limitations, and we we have we have to make our own assumptions about things. But we don't have to be guided by this pure materialism concept. You know, um, I see a lot of purpose in the way things are in the universe and it's a lot of it is shows how we we're put in an environment that makes it stable for us in terms of space our solar system is constructed where um earth is in a pretty stable place being one au from the sun it's not it's not like many other planets where it's close to the sun and it gets in a tidal lock so that it has the same many planets are in a tidal lock, so they have the same side facing the star all the time. They don't that rotate. Would be, that would be well. They rotate at this at this only one rate that is uh, in sync with the orbit. Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, right. So anyway, that's a bad thing for life, and uh, also our solar system has Jupiter and the big uh, gaseous planets out at a distance, mm-hmm. and this this has a, a tendency to steer objects like comets and some other things away from us mm-hmm. it and it it um jupiter captures a lot of um asteroids and other objects so that yes. they don't come into our neighborhood right um, right right so there's a lot of and there's various things that i've found that jupiter's kind of has a stabilizing effect on all the planet orbits if Jupiter were in a different orbit, it would affect all the planets indirectly. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting, Wayne, because when you look at naturalistic theories of where the universe came from, they are remarkably similar to what some a few of God's invisible attributes. So there are, there are popular ideas of that 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 our universe came out of nothing or basically a quantum vacuum like some particles some uh, particles were floating about in kaboom our universe expanded out of a quantum vacuum um, some people say the laws of physics created the universe well that's that doesn't work because laws don't cause things any more than a recipe would cause a meatloaf you know just having my mom's recipe in my drawer doesn't make meatloaf right so it's an inert description of how to make meatloaf or what you know how how you can put things together but the law themselves the mathematics don't make things they are descriptors so it it can't be that but the the most i think i don't know how popular it is but uh, most people i see a lot of the books i read talk about a multiverse that there is a um, kind of a a soap bubble kind of bathtub soap bubble of universes every bubble being a a universe Um, but that pushes back the problem to what makes the soap bubble universes you know it just uh, our universe just popped into being from another universe but what is generating this 
multiverse generator? What, what is making this? And so they're positing this gigantic, powerful, unseen, eternal existing thing that's making universes. They end up describing something powerful, unseen, and eternal. It sounds like God. <laughs> powerful, unseen, eternal. Some people have said a, a computer simulation created our universe. And if you take that seriously, basically you are uh, bolstering the argument from intelligent design because you're saying, even if you're saying it's a simulation, you're saying that, that our, our existence is a computer design. So that one kind of shoots itself in the foot if you're trying to get rid of God because you've just yeah and Dan even even uh, the multiverse concept requires some fine tuning. It does. It has to be exactly precise in certain areas <laughs> for you to get a bubble bath of universes, uh, bubble popping, and all that stuff. Bubble bath. Bubble bath. A cosmic <laughs> bubble bath where every bubble is a cosmic uh, universe. <laughs> it's, yeah. But the, one of the prevalent things that I get from skeptics, and I know you've heard this before, uh, is uh, the argument, well, well, who designed the designer? People say that. And, and then other people say, well, when you put God at the beginning of the universe, you're just arguing from ignorance, that we don't know what started the universe Therefore, since we don't know, you're arguing that God did it. But uh, but that's but saying that God created the universe is not an argument from ignorance. You said it a minute ago about information. When we look at the cosmos, it's filled with uh, information, and information just doesn't come from nothing. I wanted to read a quote from Stephen C. Meyer's 2019 book, and although this is about DNA and biology and the information in the cell— it's applicable to what we're talking about because uh, Meyer is addressing people who claim intelligent design is an argument from ignorance. Okay, so this, this really addresses it, and I want to I uh, read this. He says, quote, To establish an explanation as a best explanation, a historical scientist— now that's anybody who looks at the past and tries to come up with an explanation for how we got here, why we're here— a historical scientist must cite the positive evidence— for the causal adequacy of a proposed cause. In other words, if you're a cosmologist talking about the beginning of the universe, then it's on you to cite evidence for how you think the universe came into being. That's common sense, of course. And Meyer goes on and he says, Indeed, unlike an argument from ignorance, an inference to the best explanation does not assert the adequacy of one causal explanation merely on the basis of of the inadequacy of some other causal explanation. So what he's saying is, we're not arguing that God is the best explanation because materialism is false or is not a good explanation. We actually have good reason to argue for design. We're not just arguing for design because materialism is inadequate. We're arguing for design because we have good evidence to support a design argument. So it again, you know, Dan... So let me put it this way. The, the claim is that we're making an argument for God because of ignorance, but that's not the what, what the argument is. No. We're really making an argument from knowledge of right. what we know. That's right. We're, we are arguing from science. Yeah, we are. <laughs> that we know, and we're saying we don't observe things without a cause. That's right. That's right. And we don't, we don't see intelligent, purposeful entities like our sun and our planet coming into existence from without design. We, we, we have the only way science shows this, you say, that, that 
information only comes from intelligent agents. And even even atheists will say that the universe and biological life looks designed, but they just call the design an illusion. So they're they're conceding that this is designed because we know from our own experience as human beings what evidence of design is and intelligence. So we're actually using science to come up with the best explanation that the universe had a purposeful, intentional, intelligent agent creating it and finishing it and creating it and for, right. for a purpose. Meyer goes on to say, the end of the quote, he says, our argument asserts the superior explanatory power of a proposed cause based on its proven, its known causal adequacy and and based upon a lack of demonstrable efficacy among competing proposed causes. In other words, Stephen is saying that we know information comes from intelligent agents. We see information in the cell. We see information in the cosmos. We see information in the in the physical world. Our universe is filled with mathematical equations, it seems. Where did the math come from? All of this points to the causal adequacy of an intelligent being. And that's the argument in intelligent design, that it's not an argument from ignorance. It's an argument to the best explanation of where do we know that in, what, what are evidences of other minds? Well, this is what we see in the universe. And uh, so that's it's, – it's definitely not an argument uh, from ignorance. But, Wayne, what about this other one? Uh, I want to get your thoughts on it. And then I have uh, another analogy from Meyer about this that I thought it was wonderful. Um, you've heard people say, yeah, but uh, okay, so who designed the designer? That, uh, you know, <laughs> who, who, who made God? Um well, the, what would be an adequate designer? It, it would have to be a being that is not part of the universe. Absolutely. So, so, so he's not limited by the universe because he's outside. He's he has to be self-existent and all-powerful. He has to be um, all-knowing and um, not not part of the universe we know of. Right. Right. So he doesn't. The question does not apply, <laughs> right, to the creator. Well, the question just doesn't apply. It it doesn't. And and here's what Meyer says in Signature. And I thought this was a perfect analogy. And I wish I'd heard this long ago. I mean, I read this book and when it came out, but I forgot this. Um, imagine, and this is his example. I'm, I don't. <coughs> excuse me. Um, this is Meyer's example. I think it's brilliant. He says, uh, imagine you're taking your kids to uh, Easter Island. Uh, I don't know if you can actually do that, but uh, let's let's just say you're taking your kids there to see the Easter Island statues, right? The big uh, stone heads with the big noses. And, uh, right. <laughs> and uh, your your son or daughter says, uh, your daughter says, Daddy, who who created these, these Easter Island? Who created these statues? And can you imagine the father saying, well, that's a dumb question, daughter. Who created the ones who created the statues? <laughs> it doesn't answer the question, right? If if you just say, "Well, who created mm-hmm. who created the statue makers?" Uh, it still doesn't eradicate the fact that here are the statues. Why are these here? You can say somebody carved them. You can tell your daughter somebody carved them. We don't know who, but you can say that somebody carved them. And so to say that, well, who designed the designer doesn't eliminate the idea that God is behind as the creator of the universe to try to put God in an infinite regress of who designed the designer that designed the designer that designed the designer. It doesn't apply. As you say, it's, it's not an applicable question, um, but it tries to get the, the Christian when the, when somebody says who designs the designer, 
it's not only a it's not only erroneous theology it's just an assumption that that there would that god had to have been created that's not what traditional monotheistic religions teach that uh, whether you're muslim or jew or christian uh the monotheistic religions say that god is eternal god has always been but to say that who designed the designer is like uh, telling your daughter on Easter Island, well, well, who created the, the, the one who created the statues? And your daughter's just going to look at you like, what do you mean, Daddy? <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's, not a, it's not a sensical answer. Right. And, uh, you know, we talked about the statues on Easter Island, Dan, <laughs> in another podcast. We did. And uh, there's evidence on the island that you can see how they did them. That's there's right. evidence all over the island for the, the, what they did to carve the statues. That's right. What podcast did we talk uh, about that? I forgot. It was. Uh, you remember? You remember that? I what did remember. we call it? We, um, Chariots of the Gods. No. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Chariots of the. That's a good title. I like that title. Um, yeah. Gosh, that was recent too, and I couldn't remember we did that. But you're right. Absolutely right. Um, so Wayne. So go ahead. that that's another thing about design, Dan. Where is the evidence of design of those statues? You don't. You don't say that. A storm came along, and then there was a statue. <laughs> right. Uh, you look on the island for the evidence. Right. What's the evidence? Right. It's it's the rocks that are being split in two and moved around. It's all the methods that you can see for how they did it. You can see how they did it. That's right. And the people who live on the island would know how they did it. Well, and here's another problem with naturalism, I find, and it's kind of like one of those things that's right under our noses, is that we will concede something like Easter Island statues to be designed. These are just big stone heads. And we'll go, well, of course that's designed. Look at that. We're not going to say that wind and erosion and weather over millions of years created these things. Uh, same, we would say the same about Mount Rushmore. Oh, look at the weathering on, on this. It made these rocks look like president heads. You know, uh, there, there's obvious intentional design. But when it comes to us, Wayne... Ourselves, which are much more intricate than four heads on Mount Rushmore or the Easter Island head stuck in the grass on uh, on, on on these these islands, we won't concede that we were intelligently designed. Um, our our biology is more like oh, the weather and nature just created us over billions of years. Um, but what's funny, and I know we've talked about this in another podcast, but I'll say it again. We, uh, you know, the Arecibo Telescope in Puerto Rico that had just, I think it just recently collapsed. The, it's no more. But uh, they sent a signal to, um, to, a, M, to a galaxy, uh, a star cluster. I think it was Vega or uh, the Hercules globular cluster, one of the two. And anyway, in that star message, in the message, we, we wanted to aim our radio signal at uh, this star cluster. Maybe a planet would pick it up. Some intelligent life would pick it up. But in that radio signal... Uh, was a uh, representation of our DNA, and um, and this was 1970s. And I'm I'm thinking to myself, how interesting that when we want to contact aliens, we'll concede that our DNA is evidence of intelligent design. But imagine the alien coming down and visiting us and say, you know, I found your message. Uh, here I am. But as I was reading your literature on your DNA, I noticed a dichotomy. You told us that DNA was evidence of intelligent design. But when you talk amongst yourselves, you seem to think that uh, DNA is not evidence of intelligence design. And so here I am on Earth. Will someone please clear up this confusion? <laughs> when you want to talk to aliens, your DNA is evidence of design. But when you're talking about yourself and your own origins, it is not evidence of design. And uh, I think that's just a contradiction. Isn't it? Does that make sense? Uh, right. So we... Uh 
we are acknowledging the evidence of design from what we've seen and what we know. Right, life begots and, life. And it's a, it's it's what it's a d- inference we're supposed to draw, I think, from Scripture mm-hmm. that we're supposed to see that it requires an intelligent creator. Right, right. And uh, I wanted to. Uh, I, I was looking up some. Uh, Star names because of Psalm 147, what we read at the beginning of the program. And I was looking at uh, the constellation of Aquarius in a couple of star books that I have. And, um, you know, Charlie Duke, was. we read um, God numbers the stars. He gives names to all of them. Now I don't know what names. A lot of the star names, the brighter stars in the sky, have names. I'm not saying that these names are the names that God gives them. Uh, maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. I don't know. But uh, there are a lot of names, more brighter names, more brighter stars have the names. But there are two bright stars, the Eta, the um, the A and B star in uh, Aquarius, which is a southern constellation. You can see at night right now. Uh, the A star and the B star are the two brightest stars in the constellation Aquarius. They are Sad el-Malik and Sad al-Sud. Now, both of their names, from what I've looked up, uh, Saad al-Malik means the lucky one of the king, and Saad al-Malud means the luckiest of the lucky. And I thought that was interesting because that is basically the explanation, as we said earlier, for why we're here. That luck, I don't even know what people mean by luck, it's not a scientific concept, but that we are lucky to be here but in truth wayne we are not lucky to be here there was intention for us to be here but when you read these popular science books about telling us that there was no plan there was no purpose you were your existence is uh unintentional there's no teleology there's no purpose for you being here why are we surprised when we look at the headlines and people are rioting in the streets and fighting war well our the best minds in science are telling us that that there's there's no God. There's nobody coming to save us. It's just us on this pale blue dot. And uh, why would that humble us? If this life is all I have and I'm small and insignificant, then to whom or to what am I going to be accountable for my actions here on earth? Uh, if it's all meaningless and purposeless, why do I want to keep living in this world? And and to me, if if the universe is so deadly and everything is so bleak and bad and terrible, why do people who don't believe in God think that it's lucky to be in such an inhospitable world? I've never been able to figure that out. Uh, yeah, I, me either. And uh, it's it's not benefiting people to believe this. You know, it's it's uh, discouraging people, and it's keeping them from finding the purpose and the the direction that they could have in a relationship with God. Right. So, um, Wayne, you know, rather than a universe that doesn't care about us, rather than us being sort of accidental, uncaused accidents of nature, if you will, with no purpose, uh, there's no God, nobody coming to help us, nobody coming to save us. Scriptures encourage us that uh, that God is our help, um, that, uh, that in verse uh, 5 of Psalm 146, how blessed is he whose help is God, the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. And then later on in that same passage, verse 9, uh, it says, The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow. Of course, I lost my dad when I was a kid, and uh, so 
that's why I feel like God has uh, been merciful to me um, and my mom um, because we lost dad when I was in high school. But, um, you know, studying the cosmos and, and, and studying the heavens, I'm like David. You know, Lord, why do you care for me? Uh, it's amazing that you do. Thank you that you care for me and all my little things that you do. Um, you know, the, the God who's created the heavens and the earth cares about you, cares about us. Yes, and Dan, it's because of who God is as our creator that he knows what we need and he is able to help us from what he has done right. in creation and all and all the scripture tells us we have evidence of what he has done in people's lives and in in the universe. And it's because of who he is as our creator that he can help us and he can change our lives. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the numbers of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. God cares and loves us. As John says, God so loved the world, the cosmos. That's the Greek word there. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever so should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And, uh, Wayne, we hope uh, our listeners, uh, we hope uh, you guys are encouraged by this, uh, contemplating creation. Uh, You can contemplate uh, God's faithfulness in your own life. And uh, as Psalm 111.2 says, Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. All who delight in them, yeah. So, Wayne, you're going on a trip to Kansas. Hope you have a good trip and uh, drive safe and uh, watch out for deer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Please do <Right>. be careful. <laughs> yes. Especially if you're driving in the dark. Uh, as you may know, everybody knows I hit a deer uh, last month. That was an adventure we won't uh, recount here. But uh, yeah. anyway, Wayne, uh, final thoughts, and uh, we will bid you uh, safe travels. Well, it's not a purposeless universe, Dan. It's not. It's a a universe with a purpose, and our lives have a purpose. Amen. So, Wayne, when uh, you return from Kansas, we will see you right here next time on... Good Heavens. Good Heavens. Good Heavens is recorded and produced by Watchman Fellowship Incorporated. For more information about our podcast and ministry including having our staff speak at your church. Visit watchman.org, that's watchman.org, for more information and resources on apologetics, world religions, cults, and other non-Christian ideologies and spiritual practices. For Watchman Fellowship, I'm Anna-Marie Smiths.